Hi, I'm Dr. Amy Robbins, and welcome to Life, Death, and the Space Between podcast. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and medium, and here we explore life, death, consciousness, and what it all means. Today, I have a dream guest author on the show. He is the co-author of the book, Being Ramdas. So for those who don't know, Ram Dass was born Richard Alpert in 1931 and is known for his spiritual talks and is the author of the classics Be Here Now, Walking Each Other Home, Publishing the Mirror, Be Love Now, and many other books. He founded the Love Serve Remember Foundation and was the co-founder of the Seva Foundation, Lama Foundation, and Neem Karoli Baba Ashram in Taos, New Mexico. Ram Dass... I guess you all say he left his body. He didn't die, even though on the back of the cover it says he died. He left his physical body in 2019. Rameshwar Das is a writer and photographer who met Ram Das in 1968. Rameshwar Das has collaborated with Ram Das on many projects, most recently as the co-author of Be Love Now and The Publishing Mirror. Welcome. Everybody, this month I'm asking for your support on Patreon. So if you haven't had a chance yet um, to listen to my first episode of the year, go ahead and take a listen to that. And I explain a little bit more about why I am so passionate about Patreon. And one of the experiences that I had this past December with some of my patrons, where we had a one hour Zoom call, we were able to chat about everything and anything they wanted to talk to me about. And it was an amazing experience, I think for them, but certainly for me as well. So please head on over to Patreon and help support the show. You can give any amount, five, 10, $20. You can give less than that, but any little bit helps in supporting life, death, and the space between. Also make sure you're following me on Instagram at Dr. Amy Robbins. And if you are interested in receiving my newsletter, which has biweekly soul wisdoms, please head on over to dramyrobbins.com and subscribe to my newsletter. Lastly, I'm still taking ghost stories for this year. So if you have a ghost story to share, please send that to team at dramyrobbins.com and I will be excited to share it on my show. Thanks and enjoy this week's episode. Thank you. It's nice to be with you, Amy. It's great to be with you. So this book was absolutely amazing, long, but amazing. It is Ram Dass's story, um, his, from the time he was born until the day he died. Can you take us through a bit of the journey of his life and your role in it? Uh, his earlier life, you know, growing up in Boston and his, uh, family life, uh, I did get to meet his family, uh, varying doses over the years and university life as a psychology professor and his work as a, a psychedelic explorer, all of which really fed into his abilities as a, a yogi and spiritual teacher and in, in the later part of his life after that India journey. He was a really person who had a lot of experience under his belt, had done a lot of things. And I think that and his uh, storytelling ability really endeared him to a lot of people. So talk to us a little bit about the 
first chapters of his life, which were, mm. I mean, he was, he was really born into a life of great privilege, uh, which was interesting to me. And as I was reading the book, I was thinking a lot about, you know, had he not had this great privilege, would he have all, would he have had the freedom to explore in this way? Uh, mm-hmm. So I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that. Um, but also, you know, a lot of responsibility really at the forefront of the psychedelic movements in this, in the sixties. So can you speak to both of those things for people who might not know that about him? Well, the first, I mean, which we think of as kind of white privilege these days, you know, was a mixed uh, bag for him because his father had been very poor and had grown up in a tenement in Roxbury. He um, married into a a wealthier family, but he really worked his way up. Mm -hmm. So um, they were very uh, hardworking, striving people besides, and they, they were successful. His dad eventually became the president of a great uh, railroad in the, on the East Coast called, called the New Haven Railroad. You know, Ramdas uh, Richard Alpert inherited this high-pressure family that really uh, wanted him to make a success of his life in their terms. So he was very driven for that part of his life, I would say. His father had wanted him to become a doctor, and he became a psychologist instead. And there was quite a blow up over that. And yet he really stuck to his guns as a, an explorer of the mind and inner life. Of course, the psychedelic work grew out of that, out of his work as a psychologist at Harvard, where he met Timothy Leary, who uh, was brought into the department where he was, where Richard was teaching. They became not only collaborators, but deep friends. They really did uh, develop some of what the underpinnings of the psychedelic movement that has been in a revival phase the last few years. I would say they were really pushing the limits in, in their own terms in that time. And really, they thought of themselves as kind of the uh, inner equivalent of uh, astronauts into the moon, pushing the boundaries of inner knowledge. Mm-hmm. I think and, they're called uh, psychonauts now, right? Psychonauts. Yeah. Uh, what do they call but, themselves? Uh, intranauts. Intranauts. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they also were really uh, rather rigorous researchers. What they brought to psychedelic research, a scientific uh, look at uh, inner processes. I think the most important contribution of their psychedelic work to me, usually referred to as set and setting. Mm-hmm. You know, how you frame the journey is greatly influential on where it takes you. Mm-hmm. That is still a, a core tenet of psychedelic work. Yeah, and, and certainly psychedelic um, work, I think, now that's being really used as a therapeutic. Yes. They were the first ones, I think, also to really uh, try and explore the creative side of it. Uh, Leary particularly was interested in bringing in artists and writers and philosophers and other uh, psychologists and religious people. And that work has been uh, extended now. Ramdas became particularly interested in the uh, end of life uh, Mm -hmm. side of it, which didn't occur, I, I think, for him until uh, kind of later when his mother was dying. 
So what do you, because Timothy, Tim kind of stayed the path of psychedelics. Um, mm-hmm. Both got kicked out of Harvard, interestingly, by Andrew Weil, right? Yeah. Wasn't he? <laughs> I'm kind of curious how he they, feels. They about did that have now. a uh, kind of Ram Dass and Andy Wilde did have some kind of a reconciliation. Okay, uh, I was wondering in, in about later that. years. Okay, yeah. I was wondering for people who don't know Andrew Wilde, he's sort of at the forefront of, I guess, integrative integrative medicine, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he, what happened was he was uh, he was an undergrad or someone. He was who, an undergraduate at Harvard. And, and and all these undergraduates uh, wanted to be involved, right, in the clinical yeah. trials that were happening or the research and, and that was happening. I shouldn't say clinical. They trials. had made a deal; they would not use undergraduates. Uh, Andy's roommate met Ramdas at a or Richard at a uh, a party, which was almost all graduate students. Ramdas thought he was a grad student, mm-hmm. so uh, he turned him on, and and Andy was very jealous. Apparently, afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> So he kind of had it in for Richard and Timothy. He was instrumental in getting Ramdas kicked out of Harvard. Uh, he blew the whistle. Yep, which led to Ramdas kind of going underground a little bit with the psychedelic research and opening all different types of. Yeah. I don't know what you would call them, like centers, or I, I just imagine very. Well, they hippie, had a like series you, of uh, of places that they did research, brought people in, and and trained other people to uh, guide psychedelic journeys and so on. One of them was in, um, I think, the first uh, major gathering was in Zihuatanejo in Mexico. Yeah. And, uh, and they brought everything down. And I mean, it was just, yeah. it really, in so many ways, reads like a who's who of of that that time. I mean, he mm-hmm. was so connected to all of these people who were really at the forefront of so much of what we hear about and read about now. Yeah, I mean, it was a really amazing cultural moment, I think, also. So he goes to India from... Das, who Richard, mm-hmm. I should say, Richard Alpert yeah, goes to he India. Was still Richard at that point. Yeah. Uh, on this journey and meets his guru, whose name I'm not going to pronounce right, Maharaj. Uh, Maharaji or Maharaji uh, is a, a uh, kind of an honorific that means great king. Yeah. So, so he meets Maharaji. Mm-hmm. He is completely transformed almost in an instant by this relationship. Yeah, he's cracked open. What do you think for him? And maybe you've ta- you talked to him about this while he was living. What was the what was the difference between this experience and all the psychedelics that he had done? Because I think particularly now as we're sort of on the cusp mm-hmm. of a psychedelic re emergence and people are using psychedelics to try to tap into the spirituality. The piece to me that was most interesting was that Ram Dass turned sort of away from the psychedelics as a way to deepen the spirituality once he had this experience. Well, he never downed or rejected the value of psychedelics in his own journey, but he went on from there. Right, right. That's no, I'm not saying he did that. I'm just saying he, he stopped using psychedelics 
Uh, more or less, yeah. I think he would still take things every few years to sort of check in and see how he was doing. <laughs> but um, the um, what happened with Maharaji is he experienced uh, a depth of his spiritual being, his mm-hmm. uh, in later years, but mm-hmm. uh, he also. Uh, called it an opening of his spiritual heart, of his really, you know, deepest being. The function of a guru is is really to um, kind of mirror that being. Mm. So Maharaji reflected back his own, Ramdas's own inner being to him in a, in a really, you know, dramatic moment. And it through um, Maharaji um, reading his mind for one thing, mm-hmm. and for another, it, it was just this uh, clear understanding that Maharaji knew what was going on uh, with him in his depths, knew everything about him, and knew what he needed to do to proceed with his own inner work. He sent him into study yoga in an ashram for six months. So tell us about that, because what was it like to listen to him live? I mean, was he like a prophet? What was, I mean, it sounds like people are just, were so captivated by him. Well, he, he shared his own being. I mean, he, he really took people on the journey. It was very intense. The talk that he gave started at seven or seven thirty in the evening and he kept talking until three in the morning. And were there were there questions or was he just sharing yeah. and talking yeah. and so it was an interactive conversation. What felt so transformative for you? I think I would uh, m- mostly call it a, a change in a point of view. It was mm. like uh Going from uh, seeing myself as the center of the universe, which is my usual mode of (laughs) (laughs) perception, feeling of an all-embracing consciousness and love, just filling the space and and being part of that. Mm -hmm. And he was uh, able to transmit that. Uh, You know, there were times when he, I think, really experienced that in, in times when uh, he was more like the, uh, you know, if, if you're a medium, you know that uh, things come through you. Mm-hmm. And Maharaji, the character in the background there, came through him. Mm-hmm. And when I got to India, you know, two or three years later, it was very clear to me that Maharaji, that same feeling, that same kind of field of... Um, Love and uh, awareness, as Ramdas referred to it later on, when he was teach people to meditate on their own awareness and love. That was what Maharaji manifested, mm-hmm. and it came through. Do you feel and, like uh, he he would say he channeled that, or because that was never used in the book? No. Um, he he uh, he often compared himself to a uh, ventriloquist dummy. Mm. You know, it was like he was. Uh, 
I think because of his work as a psychologist and the psychedelic work that he had done and later his meditation and yoga practice, he was able to get out of the way and mm. to allow that uh, deeper consciousness, uh, you know, which is really uh, our shared awareness mm -hmm. on, on that level of being. It's just pure being. I mean, you and I are, uh, we have our thoughts and verbal this and that chatter going through all the time. But um, beneath that is the reality of the universe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he was able to tap into that and also bring a vibrational field. And when one person taps into it, it becomes more available to everybody else. Mm -hmm. And we were mm -hmm. able to resonate with that. Mm -hmm. And that's, this is not a good description. No, nope. my listeners, my listeners will understand it because we talk a lot about that. So that that will make sense to them. You know, okay. I think what what's so what was so powerful to me in reading the book was, you know, this image that I had always had of this sort of great spiritual teacher. But what was really powerful was just the humanness of him and that that the I think I let me find my, I wrote down a lot of quotes here that I really liked um the definition of a spiritual path we all keep failing tests until we don't um and this notion that we're always a spiritual path i guess i don't even know what the end of that is if you believe that that when the body does dies the soul goes on is there even an end to that spiritual path i guess there isn't a physical body but that um part of being human and being on the spiritual path is that you're continuing to evolve and continuing to be faced with your own demons, I guess, your own judgments, your own fears, your uh, own yeah. um, everything. And I think there was an experience that he had where he was giving a lecture or a talk. It was to a group of New Yorkers maybe, or I can't remember exactly who it was, but they came in and basically called him out and said, like, you're not actually really as spiritual as... Oh, yeah, I think that was at that uh, kind of uh, what he thought was a spiritual commune, but was really a psychotherapy encounter group. <laughs> but but that he described as one of the most transformative experiences, and he was able yeah. to tap into... Um, tap into parts of his life, which, which was, if I recall correctly, like his mother and an experience in a crib um, yeah. that he described. Yeah, and, it was like a regression experience. And, and for me as a therapist and also a spiritual seeker, I think what was so powerful to that for me is how many different layers there are to our psyche and to our soul. And then mm. even in all the work that he had done, and he had done a lot of work up until that point, there was still stuff to un uncover. And how he got there, it was never one, one directional. It was never, I'm just going to use psychedelics and that's what's going to help me heal. It was never, I'm yeah. just going to you know, sit in meditation. It was all of these tools together, even that experience. And his, his imperfectness, is that a word? Imperfect, yeah, imperfect, imperfection, yeah, imperfection. <laughs> I, I make up words all the time. That's fine. So do I. Uh, 
that eclecticism that he could take from so many different traditions and methods and see them just as, um, you know, something that you use um, as you can. I mean, one, I don't know whether this was his expression or my expression at this point, but it's uh, use what you can and lose the rest. Mm-hmm. I think the example of um, meeting Maharaji, of seeing a being who uh, was so uh, light and so uh, just radiated love like, mm. like that really inspired him to just keep on going. Mm-hmm. And he did, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, even I think uh, his approach to death was part of that. And he kept studying. He had this, like in those last few years, he was reading uh, a lot of uh, uh, things about near death. What and part of that eclecticism was not taking himself too seriously. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was ups and downs of the his life were amazing. What Talk to me a little bit. I thought this was fascinating about when he gave Maharaji the LSD mm. and, and um, his experience. And he did it more than <laughs> once to see what would happen. <laughs> well, the first time was when he was first in India and uh, he uh, was summoned to uh, Maharaji and interpreter said, you, you, have, uh, you have medicine, you have medicine for my head. And Ramdas thought he wanted aspirin, mm-hmm. and uh, and then he, he took out his uh, traveling pharmacy, and it was clear Maharaji referred to it as the yogi medicine. Mm. And Ramdas had uh, uh, five or six doses of uh, acid from uh, Owsley Stanley, who was the great underground chemist. And also the Grateful Dead's sound man. <laughs> this is where the who's who happens, right? It does. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, the, the interconnections are such fun that yeah, you have yeah. to allow them in from time to time. Maharaji took the LSD and he kind of tossed it in his mouth. And um, Ramdas sat there watching him to see what would happen because this was enough uh lsd to uh i think kd's uh krishnadas expression is to put a horse on the moon mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> nothing happened that was the beginning of uh a, a part of his transformation toward really um looking at spiritual practice and yoga and meditation this sort of long slow way instead mm-hmm. of the um, rocket ship into consciousness, which mm-hmm. acid was more like that. Mm-hmm. And just having to do the work. He, he had, thought when Maharaji tossed the acid, he might have tossed it over his shoulder. So he gave it to him again years later. Yeah, years later. Yeah. The second time he went back to India, Maharaji said, did you give me some medicine last time? And he said, yeah. And Maharaji said, did I take it? <laughs> Ramdas said, well, I think so. He said, do you have any more? And that was when he gave him another multiple dose. And he, Maharaji that time very carefully took each pill, put it on his tongue and swallowed and looked very appreciative. Went under, he kind of pulled his blanket over his head. Mm-hmm. 
And when he came up a little while later, he looked as like he was, his eyes were rolling and his tongue was hanging out and he looked completely crazy. Ram Dass was, uh, I've killed my guru. <laughs> <laughs> and then he completely shrugged it off. It was just playing around with right. his head. So what, it, I, I guess I'd be really curious if there's been, I don't know if you know this, but research around that, because what allowed him or inhibited any reaction to, like you said, what was enough acid to put a horse on the moon. And mm. he did not experience that at all. It was, didn't impact his consciousness. Is it like, who, who is, was this being? I mean, he was just so, was he even of this like planet for lack of a better word? Indian kind of classification of uh, yogis and holy men. He was considered uh, what's called a, a siddha, which means uh, perfected. Mm -hmm. the, someone who had finished his own work. I think uh, it's called Sahaj Stitya Samadhi. And Samadhi means absorption. In, in God, in a deeper state, in the full consciousness. Mm -hmm. What sometime do you think before. everybody was seeking from him? That um, feeling of being loved, just that, like, because that's, that's really what he transmitted, certainly right? Certainly that. Love. Yeah. That kind of love is, is a sort of merging. And Maharaji kept <laughs> saying to people, I mean, his main spiritual teaching was uh, sub-ect, which means it's all one. Mm -hmm. Sub is all and mm -hmm. ek is one. It's all one. No, as you're talking, I'm just thinking about how much Ram Dass's psychological underpinnings, because I hear a lot of that in what you're saying, right? This notion of merging is, mm. is a lot of the psychological underpinnings of attachment and early psychological um, Freud and Winnicott and, sure. and the talk of like the importance of merging and then separating and and all of that was was so much a part of his work. So being able to view it through those lenses and I yeah. think put words to it in a way that was probably really digestible for people is pretty remarkable. It was like well, he was chosen in that way too. I mean, he was chosen yeah. to be this translator, I guess. Yeah, he became as uh, he described it, Maharaji's mouthpiece. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... and you know, those, those streams that you're describing, his uh, training in psychology, his uh, psychedelic work from being a teacher, you know, he'd been a university lecturer mm -hmm. and uh, he was really good at bringing people in. Mm -hmm. So tell us how he approached death, because you were really a big part of his life. He had a stroke in 1997? Yeah, early 97. Uh, that left him wheelchair bound. Yeah. And aphasic also. He couldn't talk for a while. Uh, what, what was his, and you were, you were very connected to him at this point. What was that like? How did he, how did he view death? Being someone who had been on this spiritual path, you know, believing that we're all souls and we are all one. Mm -hmm. And, and now suddenly he's faced with his own mortality. He was the, 
person least afraid of dying that I have ever come across. Let me mm. start it from there. I think that because he had experienced these other planes or modes of consciousness, starting with um, psychedelics, and then much moving more into that with practices, this meditation and yoga practices. Mm-hmm. You know, in those traditions, death is a big test. It's the test. Mm-hmm. It's the final exam. Mm-hmm. When he had the stroke, he's being carried into the ER at the hospital. He's, he said, I, I was looking up at the pipes on the ceiling and I didn't have a spiritual thought in my head. <laughs> And I, he said, I realized I failed the test. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I think he really, uh, you know, took the opportunity to continue to uh, work on that in those, uh, it was a little over 20 years after the stroke before mm-hmm. he died. Mm-hmm. And in that time, he went back to India, right? Yeah. We, uh, my wife and I had taken our kids to India in 2004 and they were uh, five and seven. That was, that was brave. (laughs) Stupid. Right. I can barely get mine to Florida. (laughs) I understand. It was brave and it was a great journey. And uh, he said to me, uh, I guess some years later, he said, I thought, if they can take their kids there, I can get there in my wheelchair. Because mm-hmm. he had never, he had almost, you know, given up on the idea of ever going back to India after the stroke. And India is not, you know, terribly uh, uh, friendly for disabled people that way. Mm-hmm. So he goes to India, he gets sick in India. Well, he wasn't, he did get like a cold and I think he must have had some kind of background uh, infection uh, because after he came back is when he really got sick and then was in Hawaii. Yeah. He went to uh, teach a retreat on Maui. Basically it started two days after he returned from India and he had this long haul back across the Pacific from India. It was 36 hours of travel Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh, he stayed home one day and then turned around and went to Maui. And then at the end of his life, he found out he had a son, which was a huge yeah. like turn of events in this book, um, that suddenly he had a son from a woman he had been with early on in his Stanford days. What, what was it like being with him as he transitioned, as he left his body? It was um, very profound for me because it's the only time I have been with someone at that time that Mm. they left. Mm -hmm. My uh, daughter had been killed in a traffic accident a few years before that. Oh, I'm sorry. There was not like a moment of death. Mm -hmm. It was kind of a process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. His breathing, you know, we went through gasping for breath for a little bit and then stopped. And I think at some point his uh, consciousness left his body and there were still some reflexes and things going on for a Mm -hmm. little bit. Did you feel uh, like his, could you feel his soul leaving or what, 
having been so connected to him? Yeah. And I'm I'm generally not very sensitive to psychic phenomena or mm-hmm. astral stuff. Mm-hmm. I think you are more than I am probably <laughs> by a long way. His presence was very strong there, mm-hmm. even after his body had stopped. Mm-hmm. And that really uh, showed me that quality of the soul mm-hmm. continuing, whatever mm-hmm. that is. And mm-hmm. I, I certainly don't know. Mm-hmm. I, and I'm, it's more of a mystery to me than uh, ever, I guess, in some mm-hmm. ways. Mm-hmm. And certainly my daughter's death uh, precipitated that also. Mm-hmm. His presence was strong, and I, I, I feel um, okay about his leaving. I mean, mm-hmm. I miss him all the time. Mm-hmm. He's really, I, aside from being a marvelous teacher, he was a, a wonderful friend. Mm-hmm. The process of working on the book was a lot of fun too. I mm-hmm. mean, we laughed a lot, mm-hmm. over, and it was over. This was a ten-year process that memoir. Wow, it, it, um, it's that it's that thick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's the reduced version. <laughs> My gosh! Wow, I did read it cover to cover. I read it. Yeah. Um, I'd like to end with this, which I think is where uh, he probably ended, which is love. He he talked a lot about love and power, power and love, and that this was a big lesson for him in his life. He sort of started really thinking he wanted power. Yeah, his family was very power oriented. Mm -hmm. But where he ended Mm. was love. Is yeah. the greatest power. It is. And that, that was uh, really what came through from Maharaji. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. a truth, you know. I mean, it is a place that we come together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If there was one thing you would want people, it's probably hard to have one thing to take away from his life. My wife uses that expression. She says, oh, uh, just one thing. Right. (laughs) What would be the biggest sort of impact that he had on you or the biggest takeaway that you had from knowing him and from from his life? Well, I think it comes back to what uh, you talked about at the beginning of seeing one's life as a spiritual evolution, Mm -hmm. as a path. Mm -hmm. And that's... You, you know, especially in this culture, that's a, a different view of uh, who we are. Mm-hmm. It's it's not as much about what we have or what we do or who we become as our inner being. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm uh, 74 now, so I've been uh, doing this for a while. I think one of the best descriptions I've uh, heard of spiritual work or meditation, particularly meditation practices, uh, gradual changes over long periods of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if we're fortunate to have, uh, you know, a, a life and that doesn't happen for all of us, you know, a lot of lives get uh, cut short mm-hmm. and it's pretty brief, even, uh, 
from this perspective, probably not from yours, especially mm-hmm. if you have small kids. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it seems like it all stretches out before you. It also feels at, at this point almost like uh, the blink of an eye. Mm-hmm. Yep. And you know, the uh, Hindu view is of uh, karma and reincarnation that we all keep coming around until we uh, finish our work. Mm-hmm. Until and, we're uh, apparently a Maharaji, right? Yeah. It does, he's well, probably not coming back. Well, there's what uh, the Buddhists call the Bodhisattva vow, which is you keep coming back until everybody gets free. Oof. A <laughs> long way to go. It's a long way to go. <laughs> Long way to go. You know, from that uh, place, from uh, where uh, a being like Maharaji sees it from, I don't think time exists in the same Mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to end with um, the back of the book, which says, love everyone, serve everyone, Mm -hmm. remember God, and tell the truth. So... Rameshwar, thank you so much for your time today. If people are interested in reading this book, which is so, it really was so beautiful. I enjoyed it, even though I knew how it was going to end. It was just a great, a fascinating journey through the history of psychedelics, through the history of Ram Dass, through the journey of psychology and spirituality and how the two come together and where they come together and how they're both so important and essential, I think, on the, on the spiritual path. So where can people find this? And I, I think there's a documentary out, if I'm correct, on Netflix, maybe? Is that- well, there is a, uh, there is a documentary. Uh, there's several uh small films out about him. And we're hoping to do one based on the book. Uh, The book's available pretty much wherever you can get books. Mm -hmm. Uh, Amazon bookstores through the website of the foundation that has Ram Dass talks and such, which is (laughs) ramdass.org. Not too hard to remember. Mm -mm. Well, thank uh, you. Thank you so much today for your time. It's just... Really a a wonderful, wonderful book. Well, I've enjoyed it. You ask good questions. Thank you. Thank you so much. (laughs) Like what you heard today and want to hear more? Wondering what comes next and what it all means? Head over to Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Also, if you could take a minute to rate and review my podcast, I would really appreciate it. Stay tuned as we continue to explore life, death, and the space between.